Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. The SEC versus Ripple has been a closely followed case for the crypto industry since 2020. Recently, the judge presiding over the case issued a ruling that excited the industry and sparked a run-up in prices of Ripple's XRP and many other tokens. Despite the excitement for the ruling, I found it to be confusing. So I went in search of an expert who could clarify the situation for all of us. My guest this week is Lewis Cohen. He's co-founder of DLX Law. Lewis has a fascinating journey into the world of crypto and his firm has spent years following the issues in the Ripple and other securities law and crypto cases. We start at the beginning and walk up through the 2017 ICO boom and all the way to the present state of securities law and how it applies to crypto. Then we break down the judge's ruling in the Ripple case, highlighting the distinction between institutional sales, programmatic sales, and other distributions, while explaining the impact on exchanges and the ongoing litigation that other crypto trading platforms are facing. If this episode on the Ripple and SEC lawsuit has you intrigued, head down to the show notes to see how the market reacted to the decision in favor of Ripple, including charts about the inflows and outflows of XRP and other tokens deemed securities by the SEC. Finally, a quick disclaimer. Remember that although Lewis is a lawyer, He's not your lawyer. And since we do go deep on many legal topics, important to note that our podcasts are for informational purposes only. They're not intended to provide legal, tax, financial, or investment advice. Listeners should consult their own advisors before making these types of decisions. Very excited to be joined today by Lewis Cohen, who is the co-founder of DLX Law. Lewis, welcome to the podcast. Hey, man, thanks for having me. Now, as people who are regular listeners to the show are well aware, I am the furthest thing from a securities lawyer, but I've been reading nonstop lately about the Ripple case, as I think probably everyone who's in the orbit of the crypto ecosystem has, and I am mystified as to what the judge has actually ruled on. So I think today we're going to spend the bulk of the time really trying to dig into that and see if we can get me to a feeling like I'm slightly competent on the topic. That would be a big win. But you've been in the space for a long, long time. I'd love to start with a little bit of your background and how you came to focus on this area of cryptocurrency, blockchain, and the the impacts to securities law. Sure, thanks. Yeah, I started my career in another sort of offbeat kind of area some years ago, and that was in the world of asset-backed securities. And asset-backed securities at the time, especially as a young lawyer I got involved, were very different from anything else that had come before. And a whole new set of rules, regulations, and, and ways of dealing had to address them because with asset-backed securities, you take basically a pile of mortgages or credit card obligations or things like that, you put them into a legal entity that really does not do anything, it just sits there, and then it sells some sort of interest in that. And if you think about it, it looks a lot like a die, a multi-collateral vault, because in many ways, that's, that's exactly what it is. And so we had to develop new sorts of rules, disclosures, and ways of dealing with this. And I worked extensively with the SEC during that period to figure out how to do that. There was a period of probably about the better part of 10 years before the SEC came up with disclosure rules, which ultimately became called uh, Regulation AB. So despite the fact that we see the chair of the SEC saying today, come in and register and everything works fine, the reality is that in the past, in other circumstances, the SEC have modified the rules to address different and unusual circumstances. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, some things were made more tight. Some things that didn't apply were ignored. 
For example, when you had a securitization transaction, nobody said we need financial statements because it wasn't particularly relevant. Instead, they provided statistical data about the performance of the mortgages or other things. And I think that's the direction we see and we'll, I'm sure, talk a little bit more about in some of the legislation on both the, the House side and the Senate side, going, hey, let's rethink what disclosures are needed. Let's make sure the right disclosures are, are provided, but not set up rules that are sort of functionally impossible to comply with. So. Based on that background, when I first learned about this idea of blockchain, and this feels a lot like what I've been doing for much of my career. I got very interested. I was at a large law firm, and I said, hey, let's dive right in. Let's make this happen. And it became clear to me, though, that large law firms didn't really understand what was going on under the hood. I had the real privilege and honor to work with Consensus, the company, in some of their earliest projects. And so you're there at the beating heart of really what's going on in the Ethereum community and, and a lot of the different things. And ultimately, we decided if we wanted to do this the right way, we need to start our own law firm, which my co-founder, Angela Angelovska-Wilson, and I did in May of 2018. And we help people almost exclusively working with crypto assets in one way or another. Some of those may be very large organizations, but you know others uh, as well much smaller startups and, and others. And really what we believe is critical for anyone as a lawyer working in the space is you got to understand what's kind of going on under the hood. And that's what we seek to do. That's really exciting. So I would imagine, you know, at the time frame you're coming into it, one of the hot topics must have been ICOs, initial coin offerings. My experience, and I've only been in the space about two and a half years, so I, I only lived that period, 2017, 2018, kind of through headlines that I wasn't really following. But my sense of it is, is that in some ways, the challenges we're having between the industry and the SEC are a little bit reflecting back on that period of the ICO boom. When I look at an ICO, I have a hard time not seeing it as being equivalent to a private tech company doing an initial private investor round. You know, where in that case you create documents, you know, often called a safe and you have a bunch of accredited investors who put some money into that kind of initial seed startup capital pool to help a group of folks with a good idea get off the ground. ICO to me functionally looks the same. Would you agree with that? 100% yeah, 100%. This is really, it's a great, it's a very insightful question because it's really where a lot of our confusion stems from. The prior chair of the SEC, Jay Clayton, made a statement that every ICO I've seen looks like a securities transaction. I'd broadly agree with that. It sounds like you would as well. Absolutely. If we can take a, just a slight sort of step back and talk about our securities laws and kind of what the principles are, because I think it's, it's when you know what the principles are, it's a lot easier to kind of fit things into the framework. Obviously, Prior to the stock market crash in 1929 and the depression that followed, we didn't have federal regulation of security. So like many other things, including barbershops and money transmission and a whole range of things, they were regulated at the state level. Each state could make its own securities laws and it regulated activity in the state in its own way. And those are commonly referred to as blue sky laws. They, you could sell anything but the blue sky kind of thing. Obviously, after the market crash and people sort of looked around and said, well, this is these are national markets and they're really important to our entire economy in the United States. We need federal regulation. 
Fair enough. So Congress went ahead and, and drafted federal regulation. But if you're going to regulate securities activity, what's a security? What are we regulating here, right? So some things were obvious. Well, if you're selling shares of stock in a company or corporation, that's a security. That's what we're thinking of. If you're selling notes or bonds or debentures that are widely traded as an investment, those are securities. And so what Congress did is they enumerated various things. Okay, we can all agree here. That's a security. Check. That's a security. Check. And they went through about, give or take, 10 or 12 different categories. But Congress, you know, back then, they're just as smart as we are today. I said, but, you know, people are people. And they're always going to find workarounds. So if we just define securities as things with certain types of names or categories, stock, bond, note, debenture, things like that, people are going to kind of just, mm, you know, Ian, I don't, I'm not going to sell you a stock. I'm going to sell you a schmuck. You know, different, totally different, right? That's how we're good to go here. So Congress borrowed from state law this idea that there were arrangements called investment contracts, which didn't necessarily fit into any of the other categories, but it's kind of a, you know it when you see it, that's kind of what we're driving at here. That should be regulated. And so they stuck in that term. And rather unfortunately, they or maybe fortunately, they didn't define the term investment contract because it was used commonly in state law. They incorporated it into federal law. They didn't define it. And so it took about another give or take 10 years for the Supreme Court to get around to saying, okay, here's what we think you, Congress, meant when you use that term. We think it means an investment of money in a common enterprise with a reasonable expectation of profit, primarily from the efforts of others. They originally said solely, but people realized solely, is, that's not quite right, it's primarily. So when those factors are present, and here's really the important part, Ian, a transaction will be considered a securities transaction. When we relate to each other in some way, and those factors are present, even though you're not calling it a securities transaction, I'm not calling it a securities transaction, if I'm investing in money in you, we have a common enterprise in some way. We're both in it together. You're not walking away and I never see you again. I have an expectation of profit. I'm not just buying a piece of art from you. I'm like doing this to make money and I'm expecting you to drive that forward. When those factors are present, we're going to say that's a securities transaction. That may be fine. And this really ties back into where, where your question started. If we are both sophisticated people who I can make an investment in you, I'm what's considered an accredited investor, you know, you give me whatever information I need and then we make that decision. You haven't done a public offering of that. You've just talked to me. It's a securities transaction, but it's one that's exempt. No registration is required. The problem we saw in the ICO period is people were doing exactly that, but they were not doing it on a private basis. They're putting it up on a website. You probably remember this with that countdown clock and every bad thing you can pretty much do. Hurry up and buy. Not a lot of information. What information is inaccurate? Sometimes they had pictures of God knows who on the website, as you probably remember, and the whole thing was just absurd and ridiculous. So they were absolutely fundraising transactions because the people buying the tokens in those ICO transactions, they didn't really want to use the token for whatever ostensible purpose. In many cases, the protocol wasn't even built. There was nothing you could use them for. What they wanted was to experience a profit based on whoever was the team. Oh, look at this guy. It's, you know, Prince Charles or whatever, you know, some absurd things they put up. And they wanted to make a profit. And so those were securities transactions. There were no exemptions. They were done publicly. And they were in violation of the law. And so we saw the SEC appropriately come down on those like a ton of bricks. And mostly that got stopped. But that 
is where our problems kind of started because you're 100% right. Those fundraising transactions do, I think, quite clearly fall within the scope of our federal securities laws and are regulated and either need to be appropriately exempt or registered with the SEC. I want to pick up on something that you said there where you're using the term the transaction is a securities transaction. It doesn't necessarily mean that the business is now a securities business or that something that the entity has created, the token in this case, is in and of itself a security. Am I thinking about that right or am I reading too much into your commentary? Yeah, no, you're thinking about that 100% correct. And the judge really uh, zeroes in on that in that she focuses on the fact that the fact that you can sell something in a, a fundraising scheme does not make that thing itself a security. And it could be the most basic of commodities. The fact that there is a commodity involved does not mean that asset being sold, or what she refers to as the subject. Here, I'm sort of looking for a quote to give you. She says, but the subject of a contract transaction or scheme is not necessarily a security on its face. This Howey case and the cases that followed have held that a variety of tangible and intangible assets can serve as the subject of an investment contract. And she gives some various examples. In each of these cases, the subject of the investment contract was a standalone commodity, which is not in and itself inherently an investment contract. And so that's really the key thing. You have to examine, is there a scheme? You is substituting, it's a disguise. I could have pitched it as an investment scheme where we were selling securities, but I kind of obfuscated. I tried to trick you into thinking, nah, you're not really that kind of thing. And I'm giving you something that you don't want or need on its own. You just want to resell it later, right? That should be covered by the securities laws, but the judge in the XRP cases, when the transaction doesn't meet the four prongs of Howey, you could sell the exact same thing. And this, I think, goes to what a lot of people say, hang on, you're protecting the institutional investors, you're not protecting the retail investors, we'll talk about that. That's not her point. Her point is simply this, that you have to look at a particular transaction, unless the asset itself is a security. And this is where I think a lot of people on Twitter suddenly start talking about oranges. And they're like, oranges aren't securities, even though you could invest in an orange grove and that could be a securities transaction. I'm finally understanding why everyone's been talking about oranges for the last few months. Well, the catch I'd say, Ian, people use this as a simplistic way of explaining it, and that's fine. Oranges are not securities. But tokens are also not oranges, right? So I think it sells us short by underselling the argument in the other direction. Oranges are made by the good Lord, you know, upstairs. They're in unlimited supply and they've always been around and you can find them in a lot of places. Tokens are made by typically one person, you know, deploying a smart contract on a network like Ethereum and they're in finite supply and they're specifically designed that when you apply demand, the price goes up. That's not how oranges work. So they have very, very, very different characteristics. So I think, I wish people would stop saying oranges are not securities, not because it's not true, but because it doesn't kind of get at the core issue. That doesn't make tokens themselves securities, but it, it, it sort of misleads the honest listener. That's a great point. And I would actually like to chase that a little bit because then I think ICOs, clearly securities transactions, but I felt like you were going to lead us down the path of saying, even though you can have these security transactions, it doesn't in any way influence a later decision about any given crypto tokens, whether there was an ICO or not, a security. But I feel like your last comment there is saying, well, in some cases, 
it is a security and it's not. Can you give us maybe a framework that's a little more sophisticated than the oranges that we can use to just kind of reasonably apply as, as we're navigating through the ecosystem? Of course. Well, if we start with sort of the base case, XRP is is pretty good as a base case, but for the most part, Ether is, is not too far away. You have to look at the asset itself and the arrangement that it sort of represents. Things that particularly in the early days were characterized as utility tokens, which is not a term at all that I like, and you may have heard that term. But first and foremost, let's just recall the token itself is really just a number, right? What does it mean when you own, whether it's Bitcoin, Ether, XRP, or anything else, is that you have knowledge of a private key, which allows you to give an instruction to a network of computers and tells it to do something. So is there anything that's associated with that number that gives you kind of rights or benefits against some identifiable group? And for most tokens, if you look at the coin market cap, 50 or maybe even 100, when you look at that group, most of the tokens holding aside stable coins or meme coins do not you know, provide any particular rights or benefits, but other coins do. Other coins have economics baked into them. For example, they may have a fee switch turned on, there may be a sharing, there may be a DAO that's created and that if you own the token, the DAO periodically does a buy and burn on those tokens. Now you have a very different sort of arrangement. If the DAO is seeking to run a business that would otherwise just look like a normal business, except it's completely decentralized, then you say to yourself, well, what's going on here? That doesn't mean that it's necessarily a security, but you have to look at it where the danger zone, I would say for folks, particularly in the DAO community are, is, is this really something managed by the community at large? And we can use the word decentralization. Interestingly, that word does not come up but once in the Ripple decision. That's a very interesting thing because people have been obsessed around this, right? But when you think about DAOs, is it something where everybody's really collectively deciding? And there are communities that are like that, where there's really meaningful community engagement, but there are plenty of communities where it's really a small number of folks who are driving the bus and everybody else is sort of along for the ride. Those are communities. If you've got real economics, you're running a business, and there's a small number of people or companies that are functionally making all the decisions and everyone's relying on, now you have a different sort of arrangement. So as a framework, ask yourself, what is the token doing? And am I in part of an actively managed business? So XRP is not an actively, it's just like you use it, you send it to somebody, they send it back to you, like Bitcoin, they don't really do a lot. But other things are. So if you think of you know more sophisticated products like Curve and Yearn or other things like that that do have economic, those are like rate setting. Like people are actively sitting there and managing the process. That's a different thing. And so I would absolutely urge caution to your listeners, Ian, to make sure I wouldn't extrapolate from Judge Torres's decision in, in Ripple Labs that any token you do, you're good to go. That seemed to be the internet's reaction as soon as the ruling came out was, okay, everything now, not a security. Great, we're in the clear, let's go wild. Decentralization has always been, a, to me, a bit of a red herring. Like, I appreciate the idea of community-driven action in the same way that I'm fascinated by things that happen on Kickstarter. But it doesn't seem like decentralization in and of itself really has anything to do with securities law but it's been built up in the ecosystem as a shield almost that says, well, no, 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 we're decentralized, therefore securities laws don't apply. And I've never understood that logic. Could you maybe straw man the case on both sides of this argument for us? Absolutely, and it's a, it's a great question. It's really a fundamental question. And look, decentralization is, is critically important, as you say, for a lot of different reasons. You know, It's certainly a very important concept. I think in fairness to community members, 
This really got its start when someone at the SEC, Bill Hinman, who was at the time in a very senior staff role as the director of the Division of Corporation Finance, gave a speech, and this has now become kind of a, a famous speech, the How He Met Gary Plastic, which is a case. And in that, Director Hinman was seeking to address a challenging sort of issue in the community. He was, well, what is the status of Ether? And Director Hinman didn't want to say, there's nothing to see here, nothing to worry about, because basically Ether was sold and functionally in a crowd sale. So he didn't want to say that, but he didn't want to also get people all alarmed that the Ether token was a security. And so he kind of came up with this term. Right now, I see the Ether ecosystem as sufficiently decentralized. And so people extrapolated from that, oh, I get it. If you're sufficiently decentralized, then you're okay. If you're not sufficiently decentralized, might have a problem. And I think they took the wrong lesson away. The lesson is less about whether the ecosystem is decentralized, it's what is the nature of the transaction. And I think in the article, uh, which you may have in your show notes, uh, Intellectual Modality of Securities Law, you have to ask yourself, what is the nature of the token itself? So if you're fundraising with the token, whether that's because you're the Ethereum Foundation or an initial person who received a big boatload of Ether tokens, if you're fundraising for business and saying to people, hey, I'm gonna drive this thing, that's gonna be problematic. The overlap with sufficient decentralization, it's like sort of the inverse of reliance on the efforts of others. The idea would be if the community is so sufficiently decentralized that you're not relying on anyone, then you can't rely on a given seller because by definition, you're not relying on anyone. So it's more like you're looking at the same thing from the other side and saying, hey, if no one is driving the bus, then I could buy from anyone and not think that I'm relying upon them. But the key question is not the inverse part. It's the, is it reasonable to expect that you're relying on something? And so, for example, even with Bitcoin, we've seen investment contract transactions where people said somehow or another, they convinced them like BitConnect, you know, you're going to do some crazy scheme with Bitcoin. It's not that Bitcoin Bitcoin isn't decentralized, it's people pitched the purchase based on something they're going to do. So the key thing from a legal point of view is not so much the decentralization, it's that's the, that's the absence. It's the way cold is the absence of heat. It's the same kind of concept there. One of the things that I've, I've had explained to me related to decentralization is that you could have something start as a centralized project, which I think almost everything I've observed in crypto actually does, right? Yeah, it's, absolutely. You, you and I get together and we say, you know what would be awesome if we applied an automated market maker, lending pools, we come up in and lose crypto emporium and we launch. So at the beginning, clearly it's, you know, there's an enterprise, we're going to go seek people to invest in our efforts, we'll build this up. But at some point in the future, we could say, you know what, there's now a huge community of enthusiasts who are, are participating. There's lots of great people with good ideas. We've written the technical architecture in such a way that other people can build on it, regardless of what you and I think. And at that point, it crosses into this realm of decentralization. And so at some point, it definitely was a, a common enterprise, and then it is no longer. And that that somehow has an impact on the securities treatment of both transactions and the, the enterprise itself. Is that realistic or practical in, in any I'd way? I'd say it a little differently. And I think, again, okay. Judge Torres did an amazing job in her opinion. Transactions between third parties who might be you and me, you know, our friend Jane starts a protocol with, you know, six of her buddies. And she's in the process of trying to decentralize. And each month that goes by, Jane and her 
colleagues are a little bit less you know, relevant. But it's hard to say, have they really decentralized? Hard to know. But then somewhere along the way, maybe she airdrops some tokens and they're trading around. And you and I, who have nothing to do with Jane, we've never met her, don't know her, never had any conversations with her. You and I trade that token that Jane was the developer of and the centralized party. We don't know the status of her scheme. Between the two of us, we're not engaged in a securities transaction, whether or not Jane is still driving the bus on that project. Because between the two of us, we're, we're just trading something with each other. The critical thing that the SEC has tried to argue is that if Jane is driving the bus, then when we trade with each other, we are engaged in a securities transaction. The importance of that is that let's say you are in the business, you've got a couple of different things going on over there, Ian, besides an amazing podcast. You got a whole sneaker business and you were just like early on in kicks and you got like all kinds of vintage and you're a dealer in sneakers. You make a market, you'll buy them, you'll sell them. You have a big inventory of sneakers in the back behind the, the nice artwork you got there, right? <laughs> and then also somewhere along the way, you became a dealer in tokens, same deal. You buy them, you sell them, and you have an inventory of them. When you deal in sneakers, you're not engaging in securities transactions. The SEC wants to say, well, hang on a second there, fella. When you're dealing in tokens, you need to figure out if Jane's scheme is ongoing and it's relying on her or not. You're like, I, I don't know, Jane. I, I don't know what you're talking about. Maybe she went and she's on a long vacation. Maybe she just stopped, she got bored. I don't know. Maybe she's like really actively involved. I do not know. And I cannot assess that. I cannot know whether when I sell a token to Lewis as a dealer, I need to register as a broker dealer. I can't make that assessment in the same way that I'm selling sneakers here. Now, this is different. Let's say Jane comes to you with some of her tokens. Ian, you seem to know a lot of people. How about I give you a bunch of my tokens and you sell them for me? Very different set of facts. You're now distributing them. So are you an independent, third party, unaffiliated? You're just buying and selling tokens. Judge Torres recognized. That. And so she says, it's not relevant whether Jane's scheme is decentralized or not decentralized when you and I trade in that token with each other. Because you have strict liability. If you were dealing in securities, you would need to register with the SEC as a broker-dealer and comply with a whole raft of regulations. And they're appropriate regulations. Nobody's beefing about the regulations. So if you're dealing in shares of stock, oh, you better talk to a lawyer because, man, you need to register. How do you know which tokens require you to register with the SEC and which do not? How do you make that assessment? That is the beef, really, that we've heard from the crypto community from day one. Not about Jane. When Jane sells those tokens, she need, would need to register those fundraising transactions until people do not rely on Jane. And that day might come. Like she's got a big community and she happens to still be holding some tokens. But when people buy from her, they're no longer relying on her or her company. At that point, decentralization matters a lot because they're buying from her. The question isn't about the decentralization. It's the, is it reasonable to rely on her? If there's a big community and a lot of people are doing a lot of stuff, then you might say, it's not reasonable to rely on what Jane is doing. The question isn't decentralization. The question is reliance on the efforts of others. That's the Howey question. Decentralization is a way of saying, well, you don't have to rely on Jane anymore because you don't have to rely on anybody. But when you and I trade, when coins are on a marketplace, Bittrex, 
Gemini, Binance, you name it, nobody knows whether that project is sufficiently decentralized, nor can they determine that. That's the critical difference. This is super helpful groundwork. So let's jump into Ripple. So this lawsuit's been ongoing. I think SEC initially filed against Ripple way back in 2020, before the, the world shut down for the pandemic. Maybe start with a quick summary of what the SEC's complaint against Ripple was, and then we can jump into the, the recent ruling from the judge. So Ripple had already had a brush with the law four years earlier or something around being a money transmitter. And so they went through this whole thing about whether through their use of the XRP token, they needed to register. And they did. They eventually settled and they became a money transmitter and they did all of that because they generated this large amount of, of XRP tokens. And because a lot of people thought that it was a good product and it would become successful, they bought it on a speculative basis. And so they said, you know, I got a feeling this is going to be a great solution. People started buying it speculatively. That's fine. People buy a lot of things speculatively. So then they said, well, a lot of people buy this speculatively. I could raise money to keep driving forward my business by selling these tokens. And so they sold you know, well over one and a half billion dollars worth of Ripple, I think is, is alleged. And so the SEC looks at this and says, well, hold on a second here, guys. Aren't you the prime? candidate of what we're trying to stop here. People are funding your business and they're doing so in a way that is not exempt from the registration requirements in these transactions or providing the adequate disclosures. You are the poster child of what's going wrong with this whole thing. And so the SEC, after presumably a long time of discussion and engagement, decides we're going to sue you and we're going to allege that when you fundraised by selling your tokens, you violated the law. So that gave rise to this thing. Ironically enough, it was the lawsuit was, I think, on the next last day of Jay Clayton's term as chair, and the Gensler SEC inherited that and, and continued to move forward. But I think we can all readily understand where the beef was with Ripple Labs. Said, Look, you're raising a lot of money here. Feels like, just like you said, Ian, that this feels kind of like a tech company raising money, and yet you're not making sure that you're exempt, nor are you registering with the SEC. You got to pick one channel, guys, and you didn't pick either. And so that's, that's our beef with you. Now, clearly, I think part of it was also thinking that this was going to be an easy case to win, and therefore, having won that case, they were going to go on and then knock over some more bowling pins down the line. But that was the gist of the beef. And I think for many people, we thought, yeah, there's a beef to be had. So why did Ripple, and obviously you're not representing Ripple, so speculation here, not, not insider advice, but what is your assessment of why Ripple chose to argue against that case? Because that, that seems incredibly straightforward and something that I would say, well, gosh, we should probably settle and not do that again, right? That would be my layperson's assessment of the situation. But they clearly didn't do that. They've been fighting this to great expense for now over three years and it's ongoing. Absolutely. And and it's, uh, I'm glad you just reminded me because it should be either at the top or the bottom of the show. But as with every podcast I do, there's no legal advice here. I'm not your lawyer. Get your own lawyer. <laughs> so just to be very clear, no legal advice for anybody here. These are just my own opinions and not those of anyone else's. In terms of why Ripple Apps choose to sue, I mean, there's a lot at stake for them. The potential liability is it was quite large. And I think they felt genuinely that they had arguments to be made and they wanted to assert those arguments. And I think just as the SEC as an enforcement authority has every right to bring you know claims and actions that they, let's assume, in good faith, feel are violating the law, 
people who are accused of, of violating the law have every right to defend themselves. And in this case, you know, and I can't and I don't want to speculate exactly why they didn't settle, but this is very large sort of situation. And they felt they had good grounds to win. They retained some amazing law firms uh, to represent them. And they said, look, let's just go at it. And sometimes you got to just throw it down and see, see what happens. Well, and it seems like the strategy has paid off in their favor, at least to some degree. So unpack for us what Judge Torres's ruling said, because I personally found it very confusing. She made two big statements, but walk us through what that was. Sure. I, I think it really confused a lot of people. You're far from being alone. And I think it was confusing both in terms of what she just practically said and also confusing what the policy was. I think both of those flummox a lot of people and you see a lot of internet chatter. She got it exactly backwards, a lot of different things. So let's first talk about what she actually said. She broke down the transactions as the SEC put them forward into these broadly speaking three categories, the institutional sales, the programmatic sales, and what she refers to as the other distributions. Um, there were also some sales by the individual defendants, Garlinghouse and Larson. So for the institutional sales, they fit and the judge analyzed each of those separately as transactions. She'd never analyzed the XRP token after having concluded that it did not in and of itself embody a contract transaction or scheme for purposes of Howie. The token's not the thing. We need to look at the transactions. And so with the institutional transactions, people came in the front door, negotiated with, with Ripple Labs. Ripple Labs made direct undertakings to those persons and said, hey, if you give me money, look at all the different things we're going to do. This is really going to work out. They commingled the monies that various purchasers had. So there was a common enterprise through commingling what in technical terms we call horizontal commonality. The people buying the tokens were not buying them like sneakers because they're going to wear them. They were buying them in bulk so that they could resell them later at a profit. So all of those elements were present. She does it's really down the middle. Howie, boom. Did you register? Oh, you didn't. Sorry. That's a violation of the law. So you, you offered securities in the form of these transactions. You did not register with the SEC. Game over. You're, you're responsible. However, that's, that's the less interesting part of her decision. The second part obviously relates to the programmatic sales. And when it comes to programmatic sales, what XRP was doing was dribbling out small amounts of XRP in various marketplaces. And there's a critical thing, and I think this, as you said, Ian, earlier, was something that the internet kind of had missed. She focused on the fact that there was a vibrant and active secondary market for XRP. At the time that this was going on, XRP was more or less the fourth largest traded token in, in the marketplace. There were a lot, a lot of people just trading with each other for whatever reason. They're trading with each other. There's a vibrant market for that. What the judge concludes is, well, let's look at the transactions in which XRP is selling them. They're on a blind bid-ask basis. They're just mixed into the flow of the other transactions that are already occurring. When people bought or sold, but particularly here bought, the XRP tokens, they don't know, are they buying from Ian Andrews? Are they buying from Lewis Cohen? Are they buying from Ripple Labs, the company? They don't know, nor do they care. Nobody's making representations to them. They're not coming in, sitting down, engaging. There are none of the elements that are present in a Howey scheme. And therefore, those transactions are not investment contract transactions. So that's what she says. As to the other distributions, that's the area where I think many of us feel that she perhaps 
overshot the mark a little bit. So in the, in the other distributions, and your, I'm sure, community of viewers are aware, many, many projects use their tokens to remunerate their employees, sometimes contractors. And she says, well, they're not putting capital into the business, so therefore no investment of money, therefore no investment contract transaction. That's a little, I don't know about that. I think most of us would say we don't know about it. That's a head scratcher to me because like as an employee of tech companies my entire career, my labor in exchange for equity via stock options in the business. Again, this just like my ICO comment earlier. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you don't have to be a fancy lawyer. Of course, when you get stock options, you're getting a security, right? Because a stock is a security. The, the problem with the XRP token, it's not a security. Her argument is that you're not making an investment of money, but you're bartering, right? Yeah. So for example, you could imagine that you might have said, let's just be, be optimistic here. It says, well, I would have gotten $300,000 a year in cash. But if you give me tokens, I'll do $100,000 a year. Or just, just give me the money. Fine. Yeah. You're bartering $200,000 of value yeah. for tokens. That's really no different than you're getting $300,000 of cash and then buying, using $200,000 to buy the tokens. There's no economic difference in that whatsoever. Right there with you, Ian. I, I'm not sure I got anything to say about that. So the second piece that you talked about there, these programmatic sales, it seems like the industry impact on that ruling is going to be most directly felt by exchanges. And one of the charges against them, I believe, is operating as an unregistered broker dealer for facilitating securities transactions via all these tokens. Does the ruling in in the Ripple case ultimately cited as some precedent law? Well, I, I'm going to take the question just a little bit more broadly and say, you know, how does there, there are three allegations that are core allegations in three different lawsuits all filed around the same time. And all three are basically the same. Number one, exactly as you said, you're acting as an unregistered broker-dealer. So as we talked about before with the sneaker example, you're acting as a uh, national securities exchange, which is different. So the broker-dealer, you're just offering to buy and sell in an exchange. You're creating prices and creating a marketplace for bids and asks in prices. So that's the second type of violation. And then there's third, you're acting as a clearing agent, meaning you're settling trade. So you're taking the cash from one buyer, the securities of another buyer, and crossing them to affect it. All of those are three different but regulated activities. And the SEC accuses all three of those entities of all three of those violations. All of those violations turn on what they are actually trading in, not being securities, excuse me, not being sneakers, but being securities. And so Judge Torres's analysis here is absolutely central, just as you said, for all three of those cases. And, and also potentially for Uniswap, for example, which effectively facilitates very similar activity. And she says, look, it's not so much when two third parties are buying and selling absent other facts. Those are not securities transactions. And again, for example, in my case of the tokens and Jane, I think our heroine in our story, if she comes to you and asks you to distribute the tokens for her, that could well put you in the position of acting as her agent, in effect, on her behalf, and selling those securities. And in the absence of there being a vibrant market, if the purchasers, so for example, in an in a initial DEX offering or initial exchange offering, like a launch pad type situation, you know, where there is no vibrant market, and basically everybody's buying the token based on the only thing you have out there is not a market of buyers and sellers, but simply a project that's saying, hey, buy this because its number's going to go up. I think you get a very different result. So her decision really helps 
as to tokens that are already out there in trading. You had asked earlier about, well, how do you on-ramp? And that is, in many ways, the, the, the big question. And one of the bills in Congress, the House Market Structure Bill, attempts to address that by creating a kind of on-ramp way of allowing people to distribute tokens without necessarily violating the law, but in a practical way of doing that. Interesting. So if Theoretical Exchange collaborates with a new project, they want to distribute a token, the exchange has a bunch of existing customers who like to buy tokens, and they say, we're going to onboard Token X, the new token of the day, and they put out an email to all their customers, they advertise over Twitter, and draw a bunch of people in who buy Token X. That's going to get you in trouble. Well, that's where it is potentially going to get you into trouble. Okay. And that's where, to say I hadn't used the whole cold is the absence of heat thing, but I'm now I'm liking it. That's why I love doing podcasts. You always come up with something uh, new and different. That's where decentralization really becomes important. It's not so much is the project when you do that decentralized, it's is it reasonable to expect that the people buying on your exchange are relying on the efforts of that project? So if you're not decentralized, then there's a good chance that it is reasonable for them, if you're the main distributor of the token and it's not decentralized, that is Jane's really driving the bus. Man, is she brilliant. MIT, that girl's crazy. You know, right? People are going to be relying on that. It's not so much per se that you're distributing the tokens is, is it reasonable to rely on the efforts of others? And again, in the case of Ripple, Judge Torres is looking at this, and there's a lot of people trading this stuff. They don't know or care where it's coming from. In the, in the DEX offering or the exchange offering that you hypothesize, it's probably quite likely and in fact, in many cases, the exchange is actually disseminating the white paper and various things and really facilitating that reliance. If you're facilitating the reliance on Jane and Jane Labs and, and that sort of thing, then you really are running a real risk there. So it really depends on what that relationship is. What are you trading and where does it stand? That's very helpful. And it seems like there's a slightly different scenario where there's a token that's already popular by its own right. It's in the market. There's lots of people that hold the token. They trade it frequently. And my theoretical exchange says, well, gosh, we want to facilitate some of these transactions because we collect a fee on everyone and that'll make us some money. And we do the same marketing. We send out an email to all our customers and we, we advertise on Twitter and we say token X is now available for trading on our platform, that seems like it keeps me out of trouble. Well, again, Judge Torres specifically doesn't rule on that, right? She has okay. a footnote 16, and she's sort of not getting into the direct secondary sales. I think that's an area where if you're running an exchange, you know, you need to think long and hard about it. Do you feel comfortable that you're really sufficiently distant from anything going on that you're not promoting the scheme, you're just facilitating third-party transactions. If you're comfortable that you're facilitating third-party transactions, then that's a different sort of set of circumstances. So decentralization is sort of in the background, but really the question is, if you're going out there, and again, you can take the XRP as one end of the scale and maybe the launch pad as the other end of the scale. With the XRP token, she said, look, it doesn't appear that people are relying in any way on the person selling. In the launch pad, there is no market. You're facilitating distribution. It's not on your website. It's on the exchange's website, but it's the same thing. You probably have a lot of problems. But it's not that the token, the core thing here, is not that the token is a security. You've got to ask yourself, am I facilitating the distribution of an investment scheme? And that's, that is a different kind of question. 
it's very different than what I think most people are focused on right now. So I'm glad we got into that discussion. The important thing in the Ripple case is it's not over. So this ruling is not the end of the case. Talk to us a little bit about just from a process standpoint, what we should expect going forward now that this ruling has been issued. It's absolutely right. So we said there are these three categories of sales, the institutional sales she rules on, the programmatic sales she rules on, the other distributions she rules on, and then the individual sales by Garlinghouse and Larson are functionally the same as the programmatic sales so she rules on. So that leaves just one little thing, and that is did Garlinghouse and Larson aid and abet in their individual capacity the company in their illegal sales, right? So we know that the institutional sales violated the law. Her question is, did Garlinghouse and Larson as executives, did they aid and abet that? That's a factual question, that's held back, and that needs a trial. So until there, so we don't have a final judgment because she hasn't resolved all the questions. Without a final judgment, neither Ripple nor the SEC can appeal this decision as a matter of right. They don't get to like, okay, I'm appealing, I'm out of here, right? Because there's no final judgment. That requires, and you've probably heard this term already, and what's called interlocutory appeal. That is, hey, hold on a second, pause the game, because I'm gonna go to the replay booth and like try and figure out what's going on over there, right? And then we'll come back and keep playing because it's so important to the outcome of the game. We can't wait until the game's over to, to do the appeal. I gotta figure it out now because that's gonna like affect everything. An interlocutory repeal depends on both the trial court judge, Judge Torres, granting that, and also the appellate court, in our case, the Second Circuit, accepting it. So the SEC would have to ask, Judge Torres would have to grant, and the Second Circuit would have to grant. As far as I'm aware, the SEC have not asked yet, so it's sort of a moot point. They could ask if they do. Judge Torres would have to agree, yes, this is so important. I'm going to certify this for appeal. The Second Circuit would have to agree. And then we would pause the trial and move on to the appeal. If they don't ask or they're denied by either the two courts that could deny it, so sorry. And then you'll continue with the trial. But of course, there's one more possibility, right? Mathematically, they could settle with the two defendants. At that point, all the issues are done and you don't need a trial because you've settled, and then you have a final judgment, and then either side or both sides could appeal because Ripple lost two, so they have a, an ability to appeal, or the SEC could appeal, or they both could appeal. So then in either way, like the earliest, I think anybody can see this kind of getting resolved is probably about a year from now, and it could even be longer depending on the trial and which other thing. So it's gonna be a while anyway, you slice it. I'm gonna get my popcorn and keep watching, and, and I'm gonna follow you on Twitter because you get deep into all these topics as they're unfolding. Give us your Twitter handle so that sure, we can- Sure, it's, it's NY Crypto Lawyer. So NY, I won't spell Crypto Lawyer. You can hopefully yeah, figure it out. If you can't spell Crypto Lawyer, probably just best let it be. That's right. You don't need to follow. You don't need to follow. Uh, That's okay. Yeah, I, exactly. I, I'm, I'm following myself, man. I can't spell that stuff. So in any event, <laughs> it's, it's been so nice chatting with you. I'm so psyched. You've got a great show and I hope everybody's watching, you know, not just this episode, but many more of the great episodes that you've done. Lewis, thanks so much. I feel incredibly more informed than where I was this morning when we started. Started. It's been terrific. Hope to have you back again soon as this and other cases progress to unpack them for us. It'd be a pleasure. Hey there. Thanks for listening to another episode. Our team's been working hard to make our content available on all the major platforms. So do me a favor. Right now, take out your phone, head over to your favorite social media app. You can subscribe to our TikTok, our revamped YouTube. You can sign up for our LinkedIn newsletter. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter or Telegram. Just search for at Chainalysis. 
I'm extremely excited to announce the partnership between Deloitte and Chainalysis as we form a new strategic alliance to help our mutual clients address compliance challenges in the digital asset ecosystem. Our shared clients will be able to better leverage our blockchain dataset and industry-leading analytics software and training program along with Deloitte's industry-leading services to help clients manage forensic, investigative, and compliance programs. Click on the link in the show notes to read the full announcement, including quotes from our own Thomas Stanley, President and Chief Revenue Officer at Chainalysis, and Tim Davis, Deloitte's Advisory Blockchain and Digital Asset Practice Lead and Principal.